This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R. We work out our bodies. Let's work out our minds. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. You're like, what is BetterHelp? Why would I go there? Because it's it's online therapy, baby. That's right. You don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, It's cheaper. It's international. So wherever you are in the world, your therapist can go with you. And you don't even have to sit in an office. The best thing is you can do this from your phone. Uh, You can text. You can call. Within 48 hours, they're going to match you up with your own therapist. Some people have their own chef, their own personal trainer. You get your own therapist. How cool is that? And here's the best part. If you don't like the therapist, you can just find yourself another one. You know, They will match you up with another therapist. Because I have friends who are looking for therapist right now and they're saying how hard it is to find one everybody everybody got a therapist now it seems like nowadays so get one and and if you're one of those people who are like well my life is good everything's good i don't need a therapist that's why now is the time to get one because when life hits the fan and and inevitably it does right uh that's not the time to look for a therapist because it takes time to build rapport to connect for them to know your backstory, for you to feel comfortable. So get a therapist now, somebody that you can talk to, build a relationship with, and then you can take a break. But then you have, you know, you got that therapist in your pocket when things do hit the fan, when life does punch you in the face. And then you got that, now it's not even a therapist you're calling, it's a friend, but it's a friend who's gonna, who's gonna like make you feel safe and secure and hold all your secrets and, and show you how to grow and get unstuck. It's, it's the best friend in the world, right there in your pocket, on your cell phone. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Margie Sherman. She reached out to me uh, via, I think it was uh, email here. She's a, a listener of the podcast and shared her story about how both of her sisters have ended their life uh, at separate times. And she now wants to talk about how to cope with someone um, who may have t- ended their lives in your family or that's close to you and and how she is, I don't want to say got through it because that sounds like uh, like the grieving is done, and in in one of Marty's blog posts that I've read, you know, uh, you shared that you know the grieving, con- it, it never really is over; it, it's always continuing. But uh, but you're also a, a vice president uh, and a senior executive in digital marketing, so that's that's pretty cool. Uh, welcome <laughs> to the podcast, Marty Sherman. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. So. It, Talk to me about, before we even get into the story about you and your sisters, uh, I like to ask my guests, what got you out of bed this morning? (laughs) God (laughs) and my faith always um, get me out of bed in the morning and get me through everything. God and faith. I love it. You know, I'm part of the 12-step program, and they're always talking about, you know, your higher power. And I kind of grew up, I don't want to say in the church. I had to go to church every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And I find that as I'm getting older and the more um, you know, experiences I'm having, the closer I'm getting to a higher power or spirituality. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think it just comes, as you feel your vulnerability, you feel a bit. Um, like, oh, maybe there, is, maybe there is more to life out there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> so you have the two sisters who ended their lives. Where are you in the birth order? Are you the oldest, the youngest? I am the baby. Uh, there was an eight-year gap between us. They were actually twins. And so um, I came along and sort of, disrupted their world of being the only two girls in our family. Uh, but I also am grateful that I was the youngest um, because I did get to spend more time with my parents over time. Margie, um, uh, before we continue there, it's a, I'm getting like a static uh, audio <laughs> off your side. 
me see. I have my AirPods in. Let me see if it's there. If they're not on. Oh, that sounds so much better. Better. Oh my god, that's incredible. Oh my gosh, good. <laughs> oh yeah, that made me so happy. Uh, all right, good. so I'm gonna ask that question again. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Margie, you have the, between you and your two sisters who have ended their lives. Where do you fall in that birth order? I am the baby and the youngest. They're eight years older than me. Um, both both twins. Well, of course, both are twins. Um, but I, I definitely disrupted the world they had of being the two only girls in the family. But hopefully, in a good way. So, how old were you when the first one, first sister, ended her life? I was twenty three. I had just started my first big girl job in New York City. I was two weeks into it um, when I got the text from my mom that I needed to call her right away. And it was very shocking to me because at the same point in my life, um, at that time, my mom had cancer and my stepdad had cancer. My mom was on the way to see my sister um, who ended up passing away. And my stepdad was and it was put into a coma that day um, at the same time. So when I saw the urgent call me, I really expected it to be a, a, something about my stepdad uh, and was not expecting what I heard on the other line at all. It never even you know, crossed my mind that that would happen in our family. Did, did you think that that had something to do with her ending her life? Like when you reflect back, what do you, I mean, we can only theorize, yeah. uh, but what do you, what do you think contributed to that moment. Sure. Yeah. I think it was hard for both of my sisters because they were so type A and we grew up in a pretty small town in Wyoming and they were able to be the stars of the show all through school. And they were, and they won every award. They were good at everything they did. Um, and then they both went to Harvard and at Harvard, they both became um, kind of a miss in the sea of people there, and nobody had heard of them before. Uh, nobody knew they were twins because they were studying different things. And it really changed their identity quite a bit um, of who they were. And so my first sister who passed away, Erin, I believe dealt with it in a good way to begin with. She went on to MIT um, and then worked for the government, but she could not talk about her work. Uh, she was in the Middle East a lot and she couldn't tell us where she was even in the Middle East um, with the type of engineering she was doing. So I think that alone probably weighed on her a little bit. And during the same time, she ended up um, losing cartilage in her knee because she was um, an avid runner and it really affected her as she got older. And so she couldn't have her stress relief outlet anymore. Uh, she always had to have her leg propped to the, and then she had to take a leave of absence from her job because uh, they were not accommodating and letting her prop up her leg somewhere um, and work that way. They needed her sitting at a desk, uh, which, or going to the Middle East, which she couldn't fly with this issue either. Um, so I think it was all that combination of everything. And then um, a very odd mental health occurrence happened where my other sister, Leah, took off some time and came and helped and cared for Aaron, um, along with Aaron's husband, Chris. And my sister, Leah, got it in her head that Chris must be poisoning Aaron, which was just shock a shock to us. We all knew Chris really well uh, and didn't believe that. But then she put that in Aaron's head as well. And so they both believed that they were poisoned um, and kind of had this shared delusion going on. And um, Aaron actually had asked us to take her to a country that allowed um, ending of life by suicide. And that was a shock to us because we're uh, a family full of faith. It's something, you know, I had never considered and didn't understand at that point in time. And so we're like, why is she causing all of this drama? Like what's hurting her so badly that she's asking for this? And she even went to the Mayo Clinic um, and they, they knew the knee cartilage 
cartilage was missing, but beyond that, they couldn't find anything else that would be making her as sick as she was claiming with all of these symptoms. And so um, she asked, she actually asked both of my parents to do it for her as well. And she, she didn't care if they went to jail. That's how bad, like she needed to do that to get rid of the pain. Um, and so I, I just think it was a mix of things, but then having some mental illness there as well to grapple with. And then um, what's very odd is she was actually on suicide watch in a hospital when she did uh, follow through on that. Uh, somebody had slipped her what she needed in order to do that, which was shocking for us um, and sad for her. Wow. I, That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. You know, in college, when they were in college at Harvard, it's so interesting because I just had um, um, oh my, Emmy Neatfeld on who also went to Harvard and uh, had attempted okay. to end her life uh, before uh, that. Yeah, she, uh, she wrote the book Acceptance. And, okay. and, you know, she talked about how competitive it is. It's like you work so mm -hmm. hard to get to Harvard and you think it's the Holy Grail. And then you realize now there's a whole new pecking order because you're you're within the 1% of the 1%. And then it's like, you may be at the bottom of the 1% amongst the 1%. And that it becomes jarring, just like intellectually, socially, you talked about loss of identity, um, mm -hmm. they're separated, they're majoring in two different things. So what do you think got them through Harvard? I think they were lucky to have support systems there. They both fell into their own groups of friends. Uh, so even though they weren't the most popular or the best at what they were doing, they had people that were their supporters there that was helpful. Uh, and so they were able to hang on through that and get to the other end of it. Um, but Leah had a lot of issues finally finishing her degree um, it was just hard for her. She always wanted to be in a different country and doing study abroad. Uh, and then she did end up living in Australia for quite a few years. And that was her escape from all of the Harvard drama. You said Harvard drama. Was there more to it than the loss of ident identity? And, you know, I, I'm sure it's like also taxing. <laughs> and I know like kids take Adderall to kind of get through. Mm -hmm. Was there additional drama taking place? I think it was a moment where we saw hypochondria really develop in Leah, um, where everything, every drug she took, even a Tylenol, she felt it had side effects she was experiencing. And in college was the first time we really saw that. Um, the other drama that happened is Aaron was doing really well in college and Leah was doing well, but Leah was studying earth science more so where uh, Aaron was an engineer. And so Leah felt always behind Aaron once they got to college and it got to a point where they did not tell people that they were a twin on campus. And so people ended up saying hi to one and then they'd go back to that one and say, wait, like I, I saw you on campus yesterday. You didn't even look like you knew me because it was the other twin, which they are, they were identical. Wow. So it, it wasn't even, you know, there's the level of comparing yourself to other people at Harvard. And then she's also comparing yeah. herself to her sister. Exactly. And, and mm -hmm. uh, well, I was going to say, you know, I'm sure it, it sounds like in high school and, you know, or before Harvard, they were so close, you know, joined at the hip. Yeah. And now, you know, Aaron is feeling this gap between her and her sister and doesn't know what to do about it because, uh, you know, it's not Aaron's fault that she wants to major in engineering, right? And, right. And so there's that pain. Yeah. And it was, um, it, it bruised both of their egos. And we came from two separate places. I was raised in an environment that was very uh, motivating and Christian based. They had that half of the time, but we did have different fathers, although we weren't raised thinking of it that way. And um, they would go to their dad's house quite often, who was an atheist. And it was hard for them to fight off the atheist uh, beliefs or lack of beliefs. They really gravitated towards that a lot more. 
um, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being atheist, but I think it put them in a position where they didn't have as many skills to cope uh, once they got on their own in Harvard. Uh, and they they also, you know, they never dated in, in high school or college for the most part because academics were just so important to them. So they also never really had that st stability of trusting another person and having that other person support to help you uh, once you faced life and how difficult it can be. Although Erin did finally meet her husband uh, towards the last part of her life, I think they were only married. Let's, I need to do math here. I think it was about three years uh, that they were married. And I it was hard for her to be married too and just really fit into that because it just had always been academics and not much of learning how when you go through something really tough in life, you you have to cope and figure out what that coping mechanism is for you. Uh, and they they never quite did that. And that really impacted especially Erin because once something was wrong with her knee and she couldn't run, she could not cope with that. Tell me more about the coping mechanism, you know, because you talk, you brought up how you were raised in a very motivating and Christian, you said Christian-based household? Yeah. And mm -hmm. then their father uh, was an atheist. Uh, when, when I, you know, I went to a Catholic school. And oh, one of the things that, you know, I, I think about is, you know, just feeling guilty about things. How mm -hmm. did, how, how were you raised in yeah. terms of the Christian based and the motivating to cope with something like a knee injury or uh, loss of identity or a change of identity? Yeah. So. I say that I was blessed um, because I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder when I was in junior high. And I had to navigate how to finish junior high and high school with the disease. And for me, and this is where I think there it's just wiring in people, um, which I heard on some of your podcasts, like people are just different with how they think about things and how they process things. And you don't know like what disorder they might be dealing with. And so for me, um, it was very much just something in me that said, I have, I have to get up. I have to get over this. I have goals that I need to achieve. I know God's going to get me through this. He will not leave me here in this state the rest of my life. I know that. Um, and so it was a lot of prayer and faith. Uh, my youth group was really supportive and just dealing with that moment in my life changed me as a person. I always tell uh, my friends that I would have been a much bitchier version of myself <laughs> had I not gotten sick in junior high because I, I was an uppity kid. You know, I was getting the straight A's too and doing pretty well. And the autoimmune disorder really knocked me back to earth and showed me that there's things that you need to get through in life if you want to get to your end goals. Talk to me more about this autoimmune disorder and was there a name for it? And what were the experiences? Did it affect your sleep, inflammation in the body? Did it change how you ate yeah. and worked out? So uh, I was really sick. My parents didn't believe me uh, at first. They thought I just didn't want to go to school. Um, and so they kept encouraging me to go to school, which looking back, they did feel bad about. Um, but I about that January of my eighth grade year, I ended up in the ER with strep throat and a sinus infection and the flu. Um, and was just super ill. And so they sent us to a rheumatologist in Denver, which was the closest city to where we lived. And he diagnosed me with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And what was nice about this doctor and the doctors that I was able to see afterwards to manage it was they all were very hyper aware that those type of illnesses can actually affect somebody having depression or um, just getting into a spot where they're, they're not able to be social with other people. And so what I appreciated was after getting that diagnosis, the doctor spent time with my mom and me explaining what funny movies I should be watching and uh, different things I could do. I, I was bedridden for six months and they told me all these things I could do that would keep my spirits high, which really worked for me um, and helped me move forward through that journey in my life. And so um, I still have fibromyalgia today and 
and I deal with it. Uh, it's been an important thing for me to address and deal with, but it's also been important for me to live within society and contribute in a positive way and make sure that I'm able to do that. Well, I need to know one, what were the funny <laughs> movies? And two, <laughs> I don't need, I don't need an exhaustive list. I don't need the top 100. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what, what I'm fascinated by and what I really want to highlight is, you know, we talked that we're talking about how rooted you are in faith and Christianity, mm -hmm. right. And yeah. in prayer. And I really want to drive home and tell me if this resonates with you, that it's not just about having faith or about praying. It's also about taking action. It sounds like you took action by you had faith and you prayed, but you also went to go see the doctor. You also, you know, took their mm -hmm. advice in terms of watching movies. And uh, besides watching, you know, funny movies, what were the other things you had to change? Was there a change in diet and routine? Yes. And what, what were those things? The diet was the hardest. I had to go off of dairy and my mom's originally from Wisconsin. So our whole household was dairy. Um, but I, I, it was important for me to feel better. So it was worth it for me to go on a diet of more granola type foods. Um, nothing dairy, even yogurt could I have, um, really focusing on greens. They gave us a smoothie recipe, which was mainly like spinach and strawberries and apples and something else <laughs> mixed together that was great for me and, and helped me get through that. Um, so yeah, I definitely think diet is an important part. And then also we would find ways for me to be like outside. If it was sunny out, my mom would take me for drives uh, quite a bit just to get my mind off of everything. Uh, so there were, I really commend my parents for helping me during that time and helping distract me and giving up what they wanted to do during that time to make sure I was okay and in high spirits. Were you and your sisters, I would assume at this point, your sisters were off to college at that time? Because you said there was an eight-year gap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, they left when I was 10. So did you kind and of feel, oh, go ahead. I I felt, uh. I used to feel guilty saying this. I don't as much anymore. I felt better when they went to college. We were never very close. Um, and they made it clear that they didn't want another baby in our family, which was hard for me as the baby. Um, and so they actually would like beat me up and spray me with water guns if they were babysitting me to where I'd lock myself in the bathroom. So we had um, an off and on relationship. Other times they'd be really sweet and thoughtful. Um, I'm a writer because of Erin. She happened to see some of my writing in fifth grade and I, she just loved it and wanted me to be a writer. And at the time I was so upset, she looked at my writing and so I put a password on the computer. Um, but looking back, that really influenced me and made me feel more confident in my writing. So there were good and bad times. Uh, but when they did leave, I found my parents were had less stress as well. And it was just a different environment in the house after that. To backtrack a little bit, since we are talking about Aaron and your sisters, yeah. you mentioned type A. They were both type A. That was the first thing yeah. you mentioned about them. Uh, yeah. Talk to, there is a strong link between, and, and I mean, so many people are type A. So I don't want people to be like, well, I'm type A. I mean, it's a like, uh, just, you know, when we think about suicidality, we also think about type A and that idea of being perfect. And there's kind of like this rigid thinking. When you think of type A and them being type A, how are you defining that? What does that mean to you? It means that our parents expect us to be perfect. Our teachers expect us to be perfect. Um, you know, if they weren't perfect, then they weren't a value as a feeling I got from both of them. Um, the value came from very external things rather than what's happening inside. Uh, but also type A can be good as well. Uh, and they, you know, they achieve so much in their lives. By being type A, but I think it it can be hard if you don't manage it and know that you're a type A person to actually take some self-care breaks or figure out what's going to relieve stress and take the time to relieve the stress rather than just keep on going, going, going. 
Yeah, you in one of your blog posts, you talk about what you've done to take care of yourself after finding out both, you know, after both your sisters ended their lives. Can you share some of those things with us? Sure. I was uh, fortunate enough to start yoga and meditation six months before my first sister passed away. And I believe that saved me uh, along with God after she passed uh, because I was able to stay rational through my meditation, even though it was in a really unbearable, painful period, I could still lean on my meditation and lean on positive thinking and lean on prayer and the yoga, the physical aspect of that would just help me release and identify where I might still have some emotions I need to talk to and, and get out of my system a little bit. Um, and surrounding myself with people that were not the people I expected I would surround myself with. And I do think it's important to do a review of the people around you every now and then to make sure that they are supporting you and helping you grow. I feel like I got a new set of friends after my sister died, uh, just because my friends that I grew up with were very timid about speaking about the suicide. It was very taboo and we shouldn't mention it. Whereas my newer friends that I had in New York City or elsewhere, um, and even some acquaintances that weren't really good friends um, from my hometown ended up really leaning in and listening and helping and checking in on me. And that was very helpful. And the last thing I'll mention is journaling. Journaling, I know it's like a buzzword and everyone tells you to do it, but it, it works for me at least. It's really important for me to have a, that conversation with myself because things about my sister's death that I didn't even know I was holding on to will come out in journaling, uh, which is helpful for me. Um, oh, I was just going to mention one more thing, which I forgot. So go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, so many people, I sell journals after my comedy shows and so many oh, people man. ask me how to journal. And in my head, I'm just like, you just start writing. <laughs> just so, write. And, and I think for people like you and I, Margie, who are, natural writers you know I've always been you know went to the pen and pad uh it just seems um uh second nature like it's just it's just who we are and what we do uh but for a lot of people who don't write or maybe have dyslexia um you know they might be struggling with that so when you say journal is there um uh, uh, a, a structure or a method or do you freestyle write or do you ask yourself questions? What, what does that look like? Oh, sounds like we lost you. I'm here. Oh, did you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. It went back to my AirPods randomly. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> So I'll, so I'll, I'll ask the question again. Uh, so we're talking about journaling and you mentioned journaling. What does that look like for you? Are you freestyle writing? Are you asking yourself questions? Are you buying one of those books with the prompts? And how long are you journaling for? Sure. Um, I've tried everything, but for me, I always go back to just any notebook and free writing in it. It's hard if you're, especially I think if you're type A, because you feel like you need to know what you're writing about. But I found when I can just let that go and write, it's a much more therapeutic type of writing. I do recommend meditating before writing because it can help slow down the mind a little bit. So you're actually writing about what you need to write about. Um, I've done the prompt books. Those are harder for me. I, I like just being able to write what I want to write. But I, I know they can be useful for others. Yeah, me too. I, I love the idea of a prompt book, but it doesn't work for me. I have too much <laughs> that I want to say. And yeah. uh, the prompt just seems kind of limiting. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so what type of journaling do you do? I, I do it differently. Uh, a lot of times it's freestyle journaling. And then sometimes I will ask myself, a question like what's bothering me or mm -hmm. I will sometimes journal based off of a word like if there's a word that I like 
you know, I just like words sometimes. And I hear a word, mm-hmm. and I'm like, ooh, I like that word. And I'll just start journaling from there and see what happens. Um, but yeah, tip, but, but it's mostly freestyle writing when I journal. Or sometimes my journaling will be uh, like 10 notes from the day. Like just write 10 mm-hmm. things down that happened today. Like not how I feel about it, but just events, very objective write those down and then typically that might lead me into more of a freestyle journaling so it it varies from day to day interesting yeah i do also use a prayer journal um which i need to get back into i've been bad about it lately but i like my prayer journal because it asks you know what are the challenges or what are the sins from the past week um and just really helps put things in a perspective of what I need to pray about and pray for. Uh, So I recommend finding one of those as well. And um, another tip that actually was really important for me and with your field, it should have come top of mind, um, but therapy was really, really important to me. I still see a therapist weekly. Um, It's just a really good time for me to get a more objective opinion, um, but also just be able to talk about things that I can't speak to my family about. Uh, So I do think that's an important piece of it. And when my company found out that my my sister had passed away my first job, they actually paid for me to go to a counselor right away um, and set me up with someone they knew, which was so helpful and so gracious of them. And they, they paid for everything. So here's a question that just came up in my therapy session. My therapist has been encouraging me to confront people and and she's like <laughs> there's she's like you know confront confrontation is very healthy and, and so i've had to undo the um experiences i've had with confrontation in the past because it's usually it usually has escalated into something um yeah very threatening or um harmful and but i, I i'm my question is sometimes i find in therapy I have to confront my therapist. I have to say, (laughs) you know, I have to like call them out on something or uh, let them know that I'm not comfortable with a certain thing. Or I have to, sometimes you have to challenge them. Have you had to do that? Have you found that you've had to do that in your therapy session? Yeah. So I have a very open relationship with my therapist where I'm able to confront her on things. Um, My biggest confrontation was, Uh, The therapist that my company originally set me up with was great, and he really did help me uh, through a painful period. But during one of the times, he said, you know, my sister's not in heaven because she committed suicide. And that's what the Bible would tell us. I don't disagree with the Bible, but I also don't need a therapist saying something like that to me when I'm grieving. Because even to this day, I hope my sisters aren't, you know, in hell or anything like that. But I don't know the difference. Um, but I, I found that very uh, just not right for unacceptable for him to say to me. And so I did confront him about it. And he didn't like that I confronted him. And we had two more sessions and I moved on to a different therapist. Wow. And and I think that's the fear that people have with a confrontation is that it's going to lead to a ending yeah. or a dissolving of the relationship, which... Yeah, it, you know, turns out to be over the long t- oh, in the short tour, it's painful, yeah. and you're like, oh, I have to find another therapist, and kind of yeah. troublesome. But in the long term, it's healthier for you. It really is, and I had to go through a few before I found the therapist I've had for about three years now, four years. Um, it, it just takes time finding the right dynamic, and you need to be comfortable in order for it to work. The delusion that you spoke of mm-hmm. with Aaron and Leah, d- did you find that that runs elsewhere in a family? I didn't. It was surprising to me um, when, because what happened was then my sister Leah actually attempted suicide three months after Aaron died and she survived. And so then she went to a mental hospital and that there was a therapist working with her there that also wanted to meet with all of the family members on a daily basis. 
Um, and so we were going in a meeting with her and she brought up this idea of the shared delusion that happens with twins a lot. It can happen with twins. Um, not, it's not going to happen to every twin, uh, but, and that it's usually stems from something in the childhood as something that happened to them as children. And then they end up sharing delusions. Like there could have been shared delusions through their whole lives. We didn't even know about. And then this one comes up because they both are pointing fingers at my sister's husband uh, for poisoning them and wanting them dead and, and all of those sorts of things, which we never, we just wouldn't think that of her husband at all. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but there were enough tests run to show that it didn't happen. And it was not that, um, but they both really wholeheartedly, they really believed in that. And Leah also believed in that until the day she died, that my sister's husband had poisoned her. And how did this affect the relationship between you and your parents? Because you said mm -hmm. at the time of your first sister uh, uh, and, you know, completing suicide, that your parents were going through cancer and, and chemotherapy. Yeah. How, did yeah. that, how did that affect your relationship with them? Uh, it was really hard because my parents, I didn't understand what they were doing at the time, but they were just keeping me in New York constantly. They didn't want me at home with them. They didn't, you know, want me anywhere near what was happening. They're like, just stay in New York and, you know, do your work, do a good job was kind of the message there. And so I felt awful. I, I was just mad that they weren't also consoling me at that point in time because I was upset about the suicide as well. Um, and, and, you know, Leah was less concerned and she went and stayed with my mom right away. And she got mad one day because mom had to go to chemotherapy instead of taking Leah to like a massage. And so you can tell these types of thoughts were just not like clearly formed rational thoughts all the time that were happening. And so I did go visit uh, my mom. My therapist at the time said not to engage with Leah because she was trying to make the funeral and everything about her at that point in time and, and get attention on her, which was really hard for the whole family. And so I finally went down about two months later to Florida and Leah seemed fine. And I was trying to tell her, like, I understand having to live with an illness. If you're not feeling well, you know, I've, I've had an illness since I was 13. It can be rough. And she basically said, you have no idea what I'm going through. I'm not listening to you. And that was hard. So she pretty much shut me out. And then I thought something was up because we went to dinner um, the night before I left and Leah had just a bunch of cash and she bought the dinner for everyone, which was odd. And then when they dropped me off at the airport, she tried to give me a bunch of cash, which I thought was odd. Uh, and I didn't take it. And then the next morning I was on my way to work in New York and I got the call that she was in the ER 20 minutes away from bleeding to death. And so I flew right back down, uh, to South Florida to be with my family while that was happening. And it was just really hard because there's so many emotions that you're dealing with, with suicide. Like there, there's anger and sadness. It's just so many. And I really had nobody I could really, really talk to about how I was feeling because my parents were so wrapped up in what was happening, which you can imagine as a parent would be really difficult. Um, but yeah, so it, it really changed and strained our relationship, uh, for a long, long time because Leah was, um, we don't know if she was ever diagnosed with it, but, um, some therapists we know believe that she had, um, it's a, a borderline personality disorder, which is a hard disorder because it's not one where people really want to go to a counselor uh, and fix the issue, they might be totally unaware that they have it. Um, and so Leah was going to counseling, but she would fire each therapist um, she'd go to and say they were crazy. And then she just started spreading lies about our family online and started sending my mom books um, of underlying passages about bad parents um, and would highlight them, those passages, and send them to my mom. 
Um, so for me and my mental health, that was all a really tough time because I felt almost responsible for my parents and their well-being. Yeah, you know, borderline personality is a very tough. I remember when I was going through my graduate program and they were talking about how challenging it is to treat someone with borderline personality mm -hmm. disorder because they do stop coming. They don't they rarely stay long enough for the treatment to become effective and mm -hmm. uh, and for people who may not even know that they have it or um, are may know someone who has it it's it's typically uh, characterized by like an intense fear of abandonment or instability mm -hmm. uh, you may have difficulty tolerating being alone inappropriate anger you're just exploding uh, for just no reason uh, impulsivity mm -hmm. frequent mood swings and and pushing others away uh, even though you know you may have a, a loving lasting relationship yeah uh, even, yeah ahead. it's it's it was hard to watch my parents offer so much to her and you know I tried to help as well and it, but it was especially hard to see my parents try to get through and just never getting to that point with her um you know the day before she died. My mom had said, you know, I hope you had a lovely Christmas and I miss you and I love you. And about four months before she died, my mom and her had quite a rocky, probably the rockiest their relationship had been because Leah um, just was so mean. She was so mean to people. And, you know, obviously it was her illness affecting that. Um, but when she got the text, she wrote back that mom needs to leave her alone and never talk to her again. And why would she ever send something like that to her? And just, you know, imagining my mom get that text. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Um, and then shortly after, I think Leah rethought that a little bit and she said, love you too. Um, and so that was the last exchange they had on text messaging. Um, but just really we wanted to her to know that we're we were here for her we would do anything for her but it was hard for her to accept the help that we were there or see that we were helping and we weren't threatening her i think that was a good point you made there's like this fear there um that leads to attachments with other people but then i think that fear also keeps people out a little bit um because they're afraid somebody's going to hurt them yeah, the pain, you know, uh, Brene Brown does a talk. She just released a book, Atlas of the Heart. And mm -hmm. she has a HBO show where she discusses it. And she talks about how emotions like rejection and humiliation can be mm -hmm. just as painful as breaking your leg or, yeah. you know, somebody twisting your arm. And so yeah. in borderline personality, you know, they have this part of them that wants to connect and reach out and be with others. Uh, and mm -hmm. then there's also, but the intense fear of, you know, this not lasting long, you leaving them that abandonment. And then the fear of the pain that comes mm -hmm. with that. Like, if you leave me, it's going to feel like somebody just broke my leg, you know, like it's that yeah. intensity. And uh, and that's hard to communicate to someone who uh, is not experiencing that, you know, and they may not even be aware of it either. Yeah, it really is. And something that helped me is I did meet a psychiatrist who also had a sister uh, with borderline personality. So she was able to share her story of what happened in her family. And um this almost happened. We were like a hair away from this happening in our family. Um, but she basically had to disconnect from the sister because it, it was so, and that's, that's so hard because you really want to help people. Um, but what was happening is the sister was just devastating this, her life and making up lies to her husband and her children. Um, and so the psychiatrist was like, I can't have, have that in my life right now. And so she had disconnected, but the parents were mad at her for disconnecting. So her parents stopped talking to her. 
And so she basically lost her family by making a decision that she needed to put a boundary up at a certain point in time. Um, but there was a point in time about a couple, maybe a year before Leah passed that I also had to put a boundary up because the things she was saying were hurting me uh, mentally. And just, I, I, I knew at that point that God, God needed to take care of whatever was happening or, or like help her through at that point, because nothing I was doing was having a positive reaction. Um, and my parents were very, very upset with me, um, about that. Um, my therapist, a couple of therapists agreed with me doing that, but it's hard because how do you know it's time that, that you need to do that or not? Um, but it, it, yeah, it's just, it's such a hard personality disorder all the way around. I mean, you know, I've really been able to sit the last two years and think about what that personality disorder did to her and how it affected a lot of the actions that I, that I was mad at her about. You know, also, I wonder how much stress and sleep played into it because one of the things we know about taking care of ourselves is, mm -hmm. you know, especially in you having an autoimmune disorder is keeping yeah. stress levels low and mm -hmm. making sure that we're getting adequate sleep and not just enough sleep, but that we're on a sleep schedule. And I know that one of the downsides of college is that it one ramps up stress uh, two, it screws with our sleep schedules because we're partying up early, staying up late. And then were there, and then were there any prescription drugs or any recreational mm -hmm. drugs involved on either of their parts? I don't know of any recreational. I know that they originally in college were on Accutane and Leah blamed that for back problems that she had the rest of her life. Um, but yeah, I don't believe there were, oh, wait, you're right. There were, uh, my sister, Le not with Aaron, but Leah was given quite an amount of prescriptions after her attempt, um, really heavy, um, antipsychotics and anything that would make her sleep or just calm down. They were prescribing to her and she was going to so many doctors that there's no doubt she was mixing some of those as well. She probably wasn't telling some of the doctors that she was taking other stuff too. And so, um, I mean, this was before the time of our medical records that travel with us everywhere. And so I do believe, you know, my mom felt that really especially drove her to her first attempt which was in my mom's house. Uh, my grandpa found her who was visiting. And one part I left out of that is that my grandma went on hospice while she was visiting my mom. So mom stepped out with cancer, grandma on hospice in mom's living room, um, and then having lost a child and then Leah attempted. And so I think a lot about my parents and grandparents in that situation. Uh, as well as Leah being in that much pain uh, to do that. But it was found that she had many drugs in her system the first time she attempted, but there was no autopsy the second when she, when she died. Oh, that's unfortunate because there's been some research linking Accutane to depression and suicides. Like no there way. Were, yeah. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. In 2000, <laughs> In 19, I think, yeah, in uh, 2019, 10 suicides had been linked to the, the uh, Roaccutane. And they, they say that the numbers, yeah, they say Accutane may cause depression, psychosis, and they say rarely suicidal ideation and suicide attempts and suicide. Mm -hmm. But the the case like CBS News has reported on it, um, mm. and and the uh, the National Institute of Health uh, government yeah. is the the Guardian, the Atlantic yeah. had a huge article, um, uh, reporting on it. So there's been a number of inquiries about crazy. Accutane. I, I had an asthma medication, 
asthma that mm-hmm. ramped up my suicidal thoughts like tenfold. No way. I, I had I called my doctor. I was like, I'm about to jump off a bridge. And he was oh like, it might be the medication. <laughs> and oh and it was. By the way. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's like, Don't jump yet. Let's just let's, let's get you off the <laughs> asthma meds and then see where you're at. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I just want to jump off a curb now. You're right. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> that is horrible. Yeah, medications can be so awful. And one thing I just remembered is that, yes, Aaron was also on medications. They were trying different antidepressants. And I know those also have a risk of suicide depending on which one you're using. And at the time when she passed away, we were concerned that the doctors kept switching her antidepressant so much because with what we know now, somebody has to be on one for a long period of time before you know that it's working. It's not like within a week, you know, you're good and it's going to work for you. Um, And so we did wonder about mixing those and changing them so often, what effect that had just on her mental state. Oh yeah, it's it's massive because it yeah. interrupts your sleep. It interrupts your it can interrupt your bowel movements, so it can make mm-hmm. you constipated. Do you, mm-hmm. What time of year was this? Uh, were they both the same time of year? No. Or like so, what month were they? Uh, Aaron was July, and Leah was December thirtieth, right before New Year's Eve. So. I think the holidays probably had an effect on Leah's state of mind as well. Um, She was very alone at that point in time because she had lost a lot of friends and family from how she had been treating them, which it was just really sad. It's sad. Yeah, because that disparity, you know, so much of Mm -hmm. this is rooted in, I'm not saying all of it, but there's a part of it. Let me rephrase it. There's a part of this that's, rooted in disparity, meaning they get to Harvard and there's a disparity between them and the other Harvard students and like, oh, I'm not the top dog anymore that I was Mm -hmm. in high school. And then there's a disparity between those two, right? And so like this person who's your, your, your person, you know, for the past 18 years is no longer your person. And and so that could be really isolating. And then you kind of get into a career where that's, um, you know, that, that changes, mm-hmm. um, it was a third, it was a third level of this that I was trying to, uh, uh, connect to, but I don't, I don't remember it, but, but that is interesting of like the loneliness, how the pain, mm-hmm. there's so much research now I'm reading a book now called lonely and like how painful loneliness can be. And cause even if you are married, like you said, Aaron okay. was married, even if you yeah. are surrounded you know in a dorm surrounded by you know a, a hundred or thousands of other students you can still feel lonely and, and what they're finding is uh when you feel lonely and not connected to other people which is what you probably are experiencing if you have borderline personality disorder yeah. it causes chronic stress to your system it's Ugh. because if i don't feel connected to you then you are a threat to me. Mm-hmm. So it's either connection or threat, right? And so if I can't trust you, if uh, if I feel like you're poisoning me, if you know w- whatever whatever delusions that I have, but if I feel like I can't trust you, get close enough to you, then you are potentially a threat, and and mm-hmm. that's taxing on a nervous system. That has to be so difficult. I can't even imagine <laughs> what that feels like. And um, yeah, I, I've read some research articles since the passing. Well, actually, while Leah was still alive, because I just was so struggling on, is there just anything I could do that would help this situation? Is there anything my parents could do? Can I find the right therapist for her? Um, and what's good is they are doing a ton of research on borderline now. Um, but they are finding that it's more of that group setting, but it's hard to get somebody in a group setting for a multiple amount of sessions uh, that has the disorder because of feeling threatened 
or having the feelings that they have. And so like Leah would have never gone to a group setting for this um, because she she always believed that she was not dealing with the mental illness and that she was fine. It, it was everybody else's fault. Um, one, one thing that was interesting that definitely came from the illness was, so I do yoga, of course, and meditation. And my, my mom doesn't always love that because it's not Christian. Um, but I still do it. And Leah started doing it and it was helping her actually. And she explained Buddhism to my mom that you basically go and you air your grievances and you let people know that they're in the wrong in your life. When Buddhism is actually all about taking accountability. Um, (laughs) Right. And letting go. Yeah. And letting go. And so my, my poor mom called and she was so upset. Um, And she's like, you have to stop right now. You have to stop meditating. I'm like, mom, this is not what it is at all. Um, But just that's how much it changes someone's mind and like affects the the way she could process things. Um, And, you know, she's smart. She's smart. She's a Harvard grad. Um, But it was just really, she was in this place of making sure that everything fit what she needed, which was really blaming her community around her that she wasn't feeling okay. Um, even her therapist, she would blame. And so, yeah, I, I, it's, that's just such a struggle when it's not identified. And I do always think that even with myself, like I encourage my therapist and like, if I have something going on that we haven't talked about yet, please tell me, (laughs) like, let's work through it. Um, but I think it is important to just think about if you are overly stressed or if you are dealing with an injury that's keeping you from what you love to do and it's getting to your mental health state of getting like helped sooner rather than later so you can recognize what's happening. Because I think Leah probably all, like we look back to how she was as I was growing up um, and she had signs of borderline that no nobody would know what that was in our family. And then I think, you know, especially I think Harvard brought out a little bit of it with the stress, but then it it just went full on once Aaron died of like, that's how she was going to cope with Aaron's death. Painful. 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 Yeah. Switch gears a little bit to go from, I want to go from painful playlists. (laughs) As you talk about, you know, for, for anybody listening who's lost someone to suicide, creating a playful playlist. Yes. Uh, talk, to, talk to me about what, what, what are you listening to right now? Like, did you listen to something this morning? <laughs> I did. Um, so what I'm listening to right now, I'm actually going to go to my playlist quickly. Um, I'm listening to a lot of... Um, Vance Joy, who I love, who's uh, from the West Coast and Capital Cities, Empire of the Sun, um, Neon Trees. I have a playlist I made specifically to just put positive thoughts in my mind or keep them there uh, because my natural tendency would go towards an emo playlist. (laughs) I love sad music, um, but I find that the happier really um, helps me. And actually when, when Aaron passed away, I had to take a flight the next day and, and I listened to Coldplay on the whole flight um, and just kept repeating Coldplay, um, their happier songs. And it really helped me quite a bit of just getting right into music and listening um, because it, it just helps being upbeat. And I went to college in Miami, so I got into EDM music. And I find that to just really snap me out of a bad mood um, and really helps me through the grieving process because a lot of it is about the future and living life right now. Oh, I didn't realize that about EDM music. It's about the future. A lot of it is. Yeah. Um, And very futuristic. And it very little of EDM music is about something sad. It's usually like, I'm okay without you. <laughs> Type of breakups. <laughs> Which is great. It's really empowering. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but yeah, I just, I think music is important. And it's always handy to have that playlist. And I think I mentioned this, but even just using, if you have Apple music, just using the playlist they create for you, they now have a happy mix um, and a get up mix, which are really great um, and have positive, lively songs on them. Is, is there a book that you love so much that you've reread it? or that you shared it with others like you have to read this book yes um it's called light is the new black and it's written by rebecca campbell and it's beautiful and it talks about the light that we all have within ourselves and even if we go through bad times we still have that light in us and we have the control of of how bright that light is and what we do here on earth with that I love it. Light is the new black. Uh, Margie, is there a part of your story or your sister's story that we haven't talked about that you think would be of value to someone who is either thinking about ending their lives or someone who's mm -hmm. lost someone to suicide? Yeah. Um, so I actually had somebody write me after I posted something about suicide on my blog. Um, and he said that he was in the middle of killing himself. And he was on Twitter while doing that. He was kind of stalling and he saw my tweet and my suicide post and read it. And in it, I talked about how devastating it was for my mom uh, when my sister killed herself. And he said, reading that it like opened up something in him that he hadn't thought about before. He had never thought about the instance of how his family would feel if he was gone. He just always came from the perspective that they would be better off without him and the world would be better off without him. And so he wrote me that night and said that it was amazing because he ended up not doing it and he was not going to do it while his mom was alive because his mom was so important to him and he just had no idea how that would affect her. And I think that's an important takeaway in that sometimes people think that they're making it easier on their loved ones, or they just don't think about their loved ones at all because they're so consumed by the grief and depression and everything happening. And I do think it's important to think about how they would feel if you weren't here, because I guarantee you, even if you're a loner, <laughs> there's somebody that will be, you'll wreck their life by, by taking your life. That's really what happens. You don't make anyone's life better. It's so true. I mean, the pandemic showed me that. I remember I was working with someone and she talked about how much she missed her UPS guy. You know, like hearing his stories and, you know, the, the, the conversations they were having. And, and I'm sure that, you know, before the pandemic, she probably really hadn't shared with her UPS guy, how much she enjoyed no. their conversations and interactions, but it wasn't until the absence of him that mm -hmm. she was like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't wait for the, you know, the pandemic to lift. Cause I haven't seen this guy, you know, forever. And I want to hear his stories and, you know, he was getting married, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these peripheral people from your cashier to the person who delivers your mail, like all these people, like there are people in my neighborhood who I have like running stories about when I see them like they have no idea I've never even talked to them but like I have a I have like I'm like oh you know that she's this he's that they're going through this and I don't know anything about it. I'm just making it all up like I have all these storylines going about people in my neighborhood and it just like um but so when I see them it, it kind of gives me a little dopamine boost and so we're, we're connected we're, we're family they don't even know it right yeah oh it's wonderful yeah, I, I do the same thing, although my husband says I'm too nosy, but I still do it. I still have all the stories, and they're probably not even true. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Who cares if they're true? As long as it, you know, it, 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 it makes sense as a beginning, middle, end. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last question I like to ask of all my guests, because uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before yeah. you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Margie? Oh, man. <laughs> I would say that 
there, what I just said would be one thing is that there's somebody, whether you know it or not, who's going to miss you, even if it's the person bringing you packages every day. Um, but I would also, I would pray, even if you've never prayed before, I would take a shot at it and say a prayer and talk about why you want to commit suicide. What's so hard? Why can't you get through this and ask for help? Um, and see if that changes anything that you're feeling in that moment. Um, God and faith, and and it can be any faith, uh, it's important uh, in order to really feel tied and valued and, and on this earth as a valuable, worthy human being. And you are worthy. I don't care who you are listening to this. I know you're worthy. And we need you on this earth. You were definitely put here for a reason. Just look at the butterfly effect. So please don't do it. You are worthy. Thank you so much, Margie. Thank you so much the listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help calling the 988 or if you're international in Switzerland, Cambodia, the UK, Canada, wherever you are in the world. Uh, if you're in the middle East, you know, I have some middle Eastern, uh, listeners, I have a lot of, actually, I have a lot of listeners from India and in the, in the Middle East. Uh, there are international phone numbers for you. You can call, you can chat, you can text. You can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. That's right. They'll match you up with somebody in the next 48 hours. 48 hours, people. I get your own pocket professional. Uh, and you can always uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Margie. Thank you.